Welcome to the Food Junkies Podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Hey, y'all. Just some quick announcements. You can still join us in Bristol, UK, starting on Friday, May 20th for the International Food Addiction Conference. Stay for the weekend and enjoy the Public Health Collaboration Conference, May 21st and 22nd. Speakers on Friday include Dr. Paul Early, he was episode 29, Bitten Johnson, episodes 5 and 23, Dr. Jen Unwin, episode 11, Clarissa and myself, along with many colleagues. The PHC weekend includes Zoe Harkum, Dr. David Unwin, Nina Teicholtz, and so many more. Ticket information is in the show notes. Today, Vera and Molly, that's me, interview Aileen Buford Mason, PhD, biochemist, immunologist, and cell biologist, and a widely recognized expert in the field of vitamins. Welcome, Aileen. Okay, welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. I am Dr. Vera Tarman, co-host along with Molly Painshaw. Today we are speaking with Dr. Aileen Burford Mason. Dr. Burford Mason is a biochemist, cell biologist, immunologist, and widely recognized expert in orthomolecular medicine. She is author of a number of books, the most recent one, The War Against Viruses, The Healthy Brain, Optimizing Brain Power at Any Age, and Eat Well, Age Better. She has spoken on topics such as nutritional medicine, the importance of enhanced nutrition to support immunity, and of course, for our interest at Food Junkies, the importance of nutrition on physical and mental health. Her company, DRS Consulting, offers consultations in nutrition for individuals and companies. Hello, Aileen Burford Mason. I don't know how, you, what you, how, how you'd like us to call you, but hello. Hello, Aileen. Yes, it's probably enough. Okay. You know, I was going to launch into the first question of uh, what is orthomolecular medicine, but before we get to that, as much as you're willing to share, what got you interested in this whole area in the first place? I mean, I know that you're a, an immunologist and a biochemist, but there are a lot of people who are, and they're not interested in this area. This is no. your contribution. So what well, got you? Although there is, a, there is a, a discipline called nutritional immunology, which I talk about, and it's, it's not widely known in medicine, but it's certainly widely known in, in science. And so I talk about the work that they've done in the latest book, what got me interested was really a long career in research, first of all, in immunological research. And then later, when I came to Canada, I was doing cancer research. I was in the Faculty of Medicine mm-hmm. and I had a cancer research laboratory at the Toronto General. Um, now, we would do set up studies and we'd be looking at, at patients. A lot of it was clinical work. Uh, and you'd say, you know what? There's a, I have a horrible feeling that what we're looking at is actually nutritional. And it's, what, it's the aspect of this that we're ignoring. And so I was really always interested, actually from an undergraduate uh, biochemistry student, when, you know, we used to look, you've seen those, you must remember those big metabolic maps where you look at all of the chemical responses that are going on in the body at all times. And we were real, we were being taught how 
all of the vitamins, all of the minerals, uh, amino acids, essential fats were involved in all of these processes. And to me, there was one of these maps hanging down in the biochemistry uh, theater, lecture theater. You look at it and say, you know, how do we ever get enough? If they're missing, what happens? What are the consequences? So I think right from the go-get, long before I was working actually in the field of orthomolecular um, medicine or orthomolecular nutrition, um, I was already interested. Okay, good. Well, you just said the key word. So can you define what orthomolecular medicine is? Yes. Orthomolecular nutrition. Yeah, or orthomolecular medicine or nutrition is sometimes called functional medicine or functional nutrition. Or more recently, I noticed some of the departments at universities that study it uh, have started to call it precision nutrition. Oh. So basically what it is, is looking at the preservation of optimal health through providing optimal amounts of all of these nutrients that are involved in optimal functioning. So to give you an example of how this would differ, this, this approach would differ from other approaches, whether they're pharmaceutical or whether they're other um, alternative approaches. Suppose someone can't sleep. And so if they can't sleep, you go to the doctor, you have a choice of three or four different sleeping pills you could take. That's the pharmaceutical approach. Or somebody says, well, you know, I like natural approaches. So my friend went to a herbalist and got this wonderful mixture of herbs with hops and valerian and so forth. And uh, they sleeping very well. That's still medicine. It's natural. It's probably much safer because there are natural molecules the body's better able to handle than um, synthesized molecules. But if you come to somebody who practices orthomolecular nutrition, they'll say, what nutrients are involved in the pathway to sleep? What is the biochemical pathway to sleep? And what nutrients are needed to complete that pathway? So you give you, so for example, with sleep, you need to get tryptophan, an amino acid tryptophan, into the brain. Once it's in there, it has to be converted to 5-hydroxytryptophan, then serotonin, and finally melatonin. Each of those steps are require magnesium, B12, zinc, etc. So you say, well, let's give you the nutrients involved in that pathway and see if you sleep. And if you do, we don't have to have a large clinical trial. What we can do is withdraw them and see if you don't sleep again and then give them back to you. And you're probably aware that's called an N of one um, <laughs> research experiment. So you're an N of one. And so that's the approach that's orthomolecular. It's saying what might not be available to the body in sufficient amounts and can we replete those uh, nutri nutrients and see if you work better. And, and using your analogy, if I were just to give melatonin, then that would be the herbal approach. Basically, it wouldn't because it also uses it uses substances that are made from the essential nutrients, and melatonin would be one of those. Okay, so that's actually an orthomolecular. Yeah, so, so, yeah, yeah. So you would use, you know, either the key essential nutrients, and you know, essential is a key word here. Yeah, It means we're dependent on them. We can't dream them up. We can't make them out of anything else. Yeah. And we actually die if we don't get, you know, if we're completely deficient in any of them. 
So, but it also includes those substances that are made from the essential nutrients naturally so by I, the body. If I were to suggest that a person get light therapy, where they show either they make sure they walk outside from tw- you know ten until two, um, they're getting their vitamin D. That's actually an orthomolecular approach, then, isn't it? It depends when they're walking outside (laughs) and how they're walking outside, how much vitamin D they get. Uh, Yes, in the brain, the receptor for the neurotransmitters is made from three things. So you can have the neurotransmitter, you can give drugs that will increase serotonin or dopamine, but you have to bind it to a brain cell for it to function. Mm -hmm. That receptor, you know, people have this sort of misconception that when you make a cell and it has its receptors, that they're set there in concrete. They're not. They're made out of food and they come and go. Mm. So the receptor for these neurotransmitters um, is actually made of three things, cholesterol, vitamin D, and omega-3 fats. And if any of those are missing, you can have all the serotonin in the world and it's not going to do you much. Now, vitamin D uh, here in Toronto, we can make it only from the beginning of April to the end of September, because it depends on the angle of the sun hitting the skin to generate vitamin D. If the angle is too low, as it also is early in the morning and late in the afternoon, no vitamin D is generated. So it also, of course, depends on two other things, the amount of skin you have exposed and also the color of your skin. The darker your skin is, the longer you need in the sun to produce uh, reasonable amounts of vitamin D. Well, it, it really goes to show that we truly are vitamin D deficient. And I know that myself because I, 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 uh, when I see people in my office, I'm forever testing. It's almost like I don't need to bother because yes. there's a very good chance that they're going to be deficient. Exactly. Yeah. So this leads to the next point, which is that um, you, well, I think you said, yeah, most, most of us are vitamin D deficient. They also said that vitamin C, I remember hearing you talk on, on some other podcasts about how uh, people who are sick, like IE COVID, they're like scurvy level vitamin C. So we're like, even though we're eating food and hungry and, and nourished, we're truly malnourished in the key ingredients. Well, that's, I think that that really, you know, leads us to, to think about the fact that what are recommended daily intakes? Yes. And first of all, knowing that we've got a recommended daily intake, it, it's implicit in that, that if we don't meet that need, then we are in trouble. Something bad is going to happen. I love the definition, you might like it too, of a vitamin. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one I use comes from Albert St. Georgii, who was the Nobel Prize winner for Uh, isolating and synthesizing vitamin C in the laboratory. And he said, a vitamin is a substance that makes you sick when you don't eat it. Mm. So I think we've forgotten that it's what we leave out of our diet every bit as much as the bad stuff that's in there that we want to get out. And that's where my focus is basically on making sure, oh, yes, I'm very concerned that people don't eat bad food. Uh, but I'm also extremely concerned about gaps in their nutrition. Yes. Yeah, so, so the gaps in nutrition. So uh, one, one of the questions is, you know, uh, vitamins are important. Minerals are important. 
how do we know how which ones we need to get how much like for example vitamin d i'm told i'm supposed to uh, prescribe only what is it two to four hundred micro units or whatever when in fact it should be three thousand four thousand right like how do we know which and how much and yeah this is the sad thing the sad thing is that we have chosen not to ignore nutrition as part of a medical or healthcare yes. education. Yes. And so there are an awful lot of people setting guidelines that know actually nothing about the nutrient in question in depth. So uh, just to put this in perspective, I'm sitting here in my home office and I have a balcony off my, uh, my study. In the summertime, I can go out and have my lunch on the balcony when it's sunny in my swimsuit, and I regularly do it. <laughs> in 20 minutes, do you know how much vitamin D my body is going to make? Uh, no, but I see that you're very fair-skinned. You're talking about the summer. Yeah. <laughs> so I would imagine a lot with lots of skin exposure. Yeah, 10,000 international units. Wow. So that puts in perspective 200 or 400 or 600 IUs. Yeah. It is obviously, if 10,000 was going to kill us, we'd have died out as a species. Yeah. Like, we didn't have sunblock. We were obligated to be out of doors. So, so I think the two things to say about vitamin D first of all, it's not the amount anybody takes, it's the amount they need to take to achieve a certain blood level. And that varies from person to person. You know, we have a new discipline now in the last 15, 20 years called nutrigenomics or nutrigenetics, oh. which shows that for each of these essential nutrients, all of which, by the way, work together and don't work individually. So for each of these nutrients, we can have uh, individual variations in need. So my need for vitamin D might be very different from your need for vitamin D. So I, I do want to get to the foods that we shouldn't be eating because that's our focus is sugar. Right. But, but, but before we do that, can you give us, and I know your book um, gives, gives this out, uh, but some, what are some of the essential vitamins that we are notoriously deficient in that we should be focusing on? Um, so vitamin D, obviously one, obviously vitamin C, if, if people are scurvy level, that's shocking. Uh, what else is there that we should be? Well, you see, I'm an outlier in that I won't uh, prescribe single vitamins or minerals to anyone. They don't work alone. They all, there are 40 essential nutrients, all the vitamins, all the minerals, two types of essential fat, omega-3s and omega-6s. Amino acids are the breakdown products of protein. Nine of those are essential. And everything needs to be present and correct for all the processes in the body to function properly. It's a bit like, you know, that it's a a weak analogy, but think about a car and think, you know, it doesn't matter whether you have no gas in the tank or the battery's flat or the spark plugs aren't properly aligned so they don't spark the battery or there's no a, a tire missing. The car's going nowhere. And you have to start thinking, I think, in terms of nutrition in comprehensively all the nutrients interacting. So it is complex. It is complicated. And what we need to do is look every year, Statistics Canada does an assessment, well, every four years, not every year, and they bring out details of what, we're, we're, what the general population is not meeting, what they call the EAR, the Estimated Average Requirement. Hmm. The EAR is the amount of a nutrient 
that will meet the needs of half the population, the other half being presumed to be deficient. What a stupid measure. You know, I mean, it doesn't help you as a doctor think, you know, how much of this do I need to uh, suggest to my patients? So it is complex, but across the board, there are sufficiencies. Magnesium is a huge one. 95% of North Americans are uh, not meeting the recommended daily intake if they're not taking supplements. Zinc is one. The B vitamins, vitamin C, vitamin D is universal, Mm -hmm. even in warm climates, because of lifestyle changes and people being indoors, or if it's a very hot climate, they cover up and they stay out of the sun. So one of the things that I think is of interest to your listeners is the fact that the more of these sugars and starches you eat, the more of these nutrients you use up. Can you hold that thought? Because I want to ask you something first. That's exactly where I want to go. But before we get there, so it sounds to me like what I hear implicit in what you're saying is that if I want to get these essential nutrients like magnesium and Mm -hmm. and, uh, vitamin D, uh, taking my wallet to um, the health food store and buying multiple supplements is not necessarily going to get it because it's not packaged in a way that I can potentially use it. It's going to be in the foods that I eat. Am I right in in that? No, I don't think it's going to be in the foods that you eat. I mean, basically, I I always wish, I I once went one of the drug company multivitamins that uh, is is often um, used, which is not a particularly good one. But I went out when that was owned by a local drug company instead of Pfizer, who own it now. I went out to visit um, the, 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 the medical director and they had a poster on the wall and it showed the amount of food you would have to eat every day oh, to get the recommended daily intake of every nutrient. And it was a mountain of food. Nobody could eat that amount. Okay. And so therefore... I think all a lot of our recommendations are based on a false premise. At the end of the day, how does anyone know that they've met their nutritional needs? There's no way of telling. You know, we're not computers. We can't compute everything that's gone in our mouth and say, oh, yeah, oh, I'm going to bed now. I don't think I've met my daily requirement for zinc. I better take something with zinc in it. Okay. You know, it's, it's, an, it's a sort of very loose... It's a loose concept, which isn't practical. There's no way people know whether they're getting the right amount. And now I have to say, because I think it's extremely important to stress this, it is acknowledged universally now in the nutritional community that the recommended daily intake does not protect against chronic illnesses. So what are we interested in it for then? Because really we're interested in preventing disease. So if this level is not sufficient to prevent disease, and there there are international committees, I talk about it in the latest book, trying to come up with what they call chronic disease prevention levels, and we're finding it it difficult to come up with those. So I know this sounds that, you know, it's all impossible, but it's not impossible. But you have to, if there was one supplement that everyone should take, It's a good, well-formulated multivitamin and a little bit of everything. And that's a sort of insurance policy, if you like. It won't have enough C and it won't have enough D. Uh, It won't have enough magnesium. It would be the size of a golf ball 
if it was if it had. But what so, about taking five or ten of them? So, so you're actually going to have to either have multiples or you're going to have to add in extra D. And so the way I work, and you know, in fact, in the first book, Eat Well, Age Better, I actually list a set of criteria for choosing a multivitamin. So that 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 would be a start. Okay. Okay. Good. Thank you. Okay. So now let's get to, so that's, that's how to supplement, but now let's, let's, let's learn how to not make things even worse by the foods that we're eating. So you were about to say the effect of processed food and sugar, and how does that detrimentally affect our vitamin needs and nutritional needs? Well, you see, we know, and I think most people recognize the fact that these heavily processed foods are stripped of their nutrients, whatever uh, original vitamins and minerals were there have been depleted by processing. Can you explain how that happens? Because you say that somewhere and it's very interesting. Well, how it happens is it's because you're taking out the sugar, you're leaving the fiber behind, you're losing much of the vitamins and minerals through various processes. I mean, even cooking will reduce the nutrients in the food. Um, if they're water soluble, they'll be veg water soluble vegetables will lose their vitamin C in water, etc. Um, some are, are are destroyed by heat. So the processing of food um, does remove a lot of the original nutrients that would have been in the fresh plant. What happens then is you concentrate the high energy in that food. The sugar is a high energy food. And yes. so that doesn't get processed in the body without all these vitamins and minerals. So in other words, the more sugar and starch you're eating, uh, remembering that starch is just long chains of glucose molecules, even if it doesn't taste sweet when you eat it, it becomes sugar. Then, then the more of these nutrients that you haven't got in the first place, you actually need. Uh -huh. So you're actually upping your requirement for vitamins and minerals. Wow. <laughs> Okay. All right. So, so, and just the impact. So aside from that, um, uh, there's, what about the impact of sugar itself on, and does it, so it sounds like we're going to need more uh, vitamins to basically metabolize or make use of the, the starches. How else can it affect us in terms of health, in terms of chronic illness? Well, basically, I think it's rooted in one a really interesting fact. No cell in the body can work without glucose. It needs it as a fuel. So it's absolutely essential. And I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but the brain uses nutrients at 10 times the rate of any other tissue and glucose and oxygen. Mm -hmm. So basically, there's a high nutritional cost to running a brain. And the harder you're working the brain, the more of these nutrients you need. So the problem with sugar is that the brain can't work without 24 out 24-7 our brains are going to need glucose going through it. The problem comes from eating too much at the same time. So if you eat the foods that we know contribute glucose and a lot of other nutrients as well, the fruits and vegetables, in their whole form, not as juices, yeah. uh, then they break down slowly and they keep releasing a little bit of glucose throughout a long period of time. That way, the brain is well nourished and is happy with the amount of glucose it's getting. And this, I think, also leads to the possibility of why we might consider these foods addictive. If you eat either a lot of sugar, 
And it could be in a natural form. So a glass of orange juice is the equivalent of 10 teaspoons of sugar. Mm -hmm. And it's the same as a can of Coca-Cola. So you'd you'd cough back a quick uh, glass of orange juice. What happens is instead of your blood sugar gently going up and circulating and feeding the brain and other cells, it shoots up. Now, that has consequences, physiological consequences. High levels of sugar will what we call glycate proteins. So they'll attach to proteins. And when they do, when the sugar attaches to proteins, they change their function. They don't work properly. So, you know, your listeners will probably be aware if they look at their blood tests, regular blood tests, that there's one that they they check blood sugars, but they also check something called hemoglobin A1C. Yes. And hemoglobin A1C is simply hemoglobin with sugar attached to it. We don't want the sugar there. It's just an easy protein to get at. But there are other proteins like collagen, like DNA, like RNA. All of these proteins can be damaged by high levels of sugar. So if every time we drank a glass of orange juice, we got universal glycation of protein molecules, we'd be in terrible trouble. And that's where and that's where things like the neurofibrillary tangles of, of, of um, Alzheimer's happen, isn't it? It can. Yeah, exactly. So what happens is we make insulin. Yes. As soon as we have a high spike of sugar, we make insulin. So the insulin is our storage hormone. It's probably the most important hormone in the body. Tiny little unicellular creatures in the sea have insulin in them to store nutrients. Mm. So insulin goes up and what it does is it removes the sugar from the blood by acting like a key into a cell to allow the sugar to go inside where it's converted into fat. So if your blood sugar shoots up, then insulin will go up and then sugar will come crashing down because it's all now all stored. Yeah. What's happening to the brain now? Yeah. It needs 10 times the sugar that any other cell needs. So it's telling you, I need some more. I don't care what it is. Get me another glass of orange juice, another cookie, another slice of toast. It just, I need more. And so then the same thing happens all over again if the wrong food is chosen. So this is where I think we see, I can't stop eating. You know, somebody who can work their way through a whole box of cookies, you know, in five minutes. Uh, Somebody who will buy a large bar of of, uh, milk chocolate and eat the whole thing. Give them dark chocolate where there's not enough sugar to push their blood sugar up and make insulin, you know, bring it down, then they'll say, oh, it's very filling. I can only eat two or three squares. So I think you could call it addiction if you like, but it's just that the brain is telling you, you know, I need more. I can't work this way. And so it's a self-perpetuating roller coaster that people get onto. And just tying uh, to what you said a little bit earlier, um, all the while that that's happening, that excessive amount of sugar is getting loaded into the brain, we're further depleting our mineral and and vitamin, uh, hence causing brain fatigue, basically. Yeah, we're we're not actually depleting them. What we're doing is, in some cases, we are actually, you're right, depleting them. But mostly we're saying, okay, now your demands for vitamins and minerals are much, much higher. Right. You weren't getting a lot in the, in the first place, but now you need even more. 
Okay. Okay. So, so um, with all of that happening, so I, you've explained in a sense, the addiction dynamic. And of course, there's also the dopaminergic piece that, uh, that we're especially interested in. But aside from that, uh, what else can, what else can happen besides uh, with this overloading in the brain? So there's Alzheimer's, there's this addictive pattern of eating. What else? Like, can this, you see what happens um, eventually, if this pattern of eating goes on for a long time, which it does for many, for which it is very common, about 60% of a Canadian population are eating like this. Yes. So if it goes on for a long time, you know, cells don't like having stuff pushed into them. The cells literally get ticked off with having insulin stuff them full of sugar, which they turn into fat. Uh So what they do is they downregulate the receptors for the insulin. So what happens then is that you become insulin resistant because blood sugar shoots up, insulin goes up to try and get rid of the sugar, but it can't because, you know, those keyholes that the lock was fitting into, you know, are no longer there. And so basically now you have high blood sugar and high insulin and you're pre-diabetic. You've become insulin resistant. Now, if you're insulin resistant, you can't store anything. And this is happening in the brain. So you can't actually even store the glucose, get the glucose in cells to get them to work properly. And you can't store the nutrients that you need. You can't store the tyrosine to make the dopamine. And so basically that's the problem, I think. And there are people, I'm sure you're well aware, there are scientists now who are calling Alzheimer's diabetes type three. Yes. Diabetes of the brain. But not. It sounds like with with you're just saying. I didn't realize this that if if we're not able to make dopamine, this might be an explanation for depression as well and anxiety. Yeah. Well, indeed, anxiety is uh, definitely um, uh, related to diet. There's no doubt about it. You know, we've no. I'm very interested in what happens to young people, particularly you know when they're studying hard and first year and second year maybe at university where they're challenging their brain a lot and they're probably at home away from home for the first time and they're living on pot noodles from the dollar store or whatever and so their diet is terrible and they get depressed so easily and they get so anxious Mm -hmm. and you know I I've, I've for three years now I've been doing a course with high school students called uh, Feed Your Brain. And they're really astonished to discover that how their brain works might depend on how they ate. And so there's one case study I show them on generalized anxiety disorder, um, which so many of them relate to when you explain what it is. And it just showed this young girl who was eating, you know, starchy foods, sugary foods, et cetera, living on that basically, very severely anxious when they got her off those foods and onto a, 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 a basic natural diet with both protein and uh, vegetables and fruit as the form of sugar rather than sugar and starch, she recovered. And then they proved it by re- putting her back on her own diet and the anxiety came back again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good. Uh, as a- you talk a lot about aging and nutrition. So does, does, does a sugar bad, uh, a sugar full of sugar diet contribute to aging? Does it age a person more quickly? It does. Um, you know, just in the simple, remember I talked earlier about glycation, about yes. glucose yes. attaching. Well, 
collagen, which is the most abundant molecule in the body after water. Yeah. But when you glycate collagen, what do you get? You get wrinkles. Yes, I was just thinking that. It's the yeah. thing that keeps our skin smooth or not. <laughs> That's right. And so, you know, I, I remember once when I was teaching a course and somebody asked about what said, oh, well, you know, if somebody didn't have wrinkles, they could have had plastic surgery done. I said, yes, they could, you know, and I have no interest in plastic surgery. I'm more interested in the wrinkles on my heart valve than they, oh. I, I am on my face. It's not just, um, you know, vanity that you want. Your entire body structure is held together with collagen. I never thought about that. So a wrinkled face is actually an indication of the inside of the person as well. Absolutely. How much they're aging internally as well. Yeah. Wow, that is really interesting. Okay. Okay. So so uh, now we see the uh, sort of dangers of sugar. Uh, so for those of us who are living a sugar-free life, uh, there's a lot of debate about what's the best way to do that. Should we do keto? Should we do paleo? Should we do you know protein, fat, whatever? I, I saw that you had taught, I really like this term that you used, uh, that you don't necessarily support a plant-based diet, but a plant-rich diet. And yeah. can you talk a little bit about, um, I, I guess, the ideal food plan, not necessarily which of those plans I mentioned, just what do you think is a, the best way that we can go uh, with that? Yeah. So I think, you know, the healthiest way to do this, and I think everybody has to do it. I've just read a, a study out today, actually, looking at um, cardiovascular disease and low starch sugar diets. I mean, it's quite clear that that's the way we evolved. We didn't have these high energy foods. Our ancestors didn't have them. So basically, we, we're struggling to 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 come to terms with this you know in in um in 2015 there was a, a review published a senate committee was tasked with looking at preventing obesity and chronic illness in canadians uh -huh. and they had a really startling quote in there it said a hundred years ago canadians ate four pounds of sugar per head per year by the time they were publishing their report it was 152 pounds per person per year. That yeah. is a change that our physiology can't cope with. It's just, it's too dramatic and too drastic a change. So I think there, there, whichever way you look, whatever disease you want to prevent, whether it's heart disease, stroke, dementia, osteoporosis, any disease at all, a low, a low sugar, I would call it a no sugar, no, no um, added sugar, low starch diet, seems to come out best. Now, is that a ketogenic diet? No, not necessarily. And I think we're going to... And nor is it a vegan diet. It's not a vegan diet for sure. It's not. One of the reasons that what, what we need to add to the uh, no sugar, low, low starch part of the story is we need actually more protein than we've been told. And, you know, this is, it concerns me greatly that we're trying to de-emphasize protein and say, oh, we don't need it as much. We're made from protein. The, the word protein comes from the Greek for first. It's the first food. From top to toe, we are protein. And we need protein for two reasons. One you've already touched on. One is to maintain these bodies and physical structures in the body mm -hmm. and repair. But also the amino acids are the building blocks 
for many of the most important functional molecules that keep us functioning. Neurotransmitters like serotonin, dopamine, hormones like insulin, thyroxine, all of the molecules of the immune system like interferon and antibodies, they're protein molecules. We don't store protein and we don't store any of these molecules. We have to make them as required. So basically, we need the protein as well. And we need the low sugar carbs. If people tell me they're on a low carb diet when they come to my office, I always say, I hope you're not. I want you on a high carb diet. And they look shocked. And I say, no, high vegetables and fruit. You know, and then they go, oh, I didn't know they were carbs. Uh So, you know, you get as much sugar as your body requires um, dosed appropriately and and just entering cells at the right pace from vegetables and fruit. No one ever died of a bread deficiency. (laughs) You know, it's, it's just these are foods that are cheap. They're easy to produce. And, and, and one of the reasons is that they make a huge profit for food companies. Yeah. yeah. So, so you're talking about uh, foods like basically the, the sort of green vegetables and uh, fruits, and, but not starchy. So like not the potatoes and um, that sort of thing. And then uh, it sounded like at some point you were saying maybe three to four grams of protein, p- pardon me, uh, ounces of protein per meal. Yes, per meal. That's the latest, um, I mean, the big consensus um, uh, summit that was held on protein said very startling things. First of all, bones, the most important component of bone is the protein core. And for healthy bones, we actually need 50% more than we're told is adequate at the moment to, to maintain bone health. And um, as we age, from the age of 65 onwards, our protein needs are going up, not down. So basically, since you can't store protein, what happens is if you don't get it in, within one to three days of not meeting your protein needs, the body has to make the neurotransmitters like dopamine and serotonin. It has to make insulin and thyroxine. So where does it get those amino acids? It breaks down muscle and then to provide those amino acids. So that's, I think, where we see people not aging well because they're getting weaker, scrawnier, and they're just their muscles are not as functional as they should be. So it's protein plus. The problem with protein too, and this is not a problem, but it, it's, it's universal really. There are thresholds beyond which we don't absorb or metabolize something. And it's true of protein. And if you hear people say, oh, Canadians ate too much protein, uh, there's a grain of truth always in any of these sayings. And the grain of truth is they ate too much at one meal. They piled it all into dinner time. So it's considered ideal now, especially for functioning, brain function, et cetera, that we divide it up between breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So to keep the optimal amount is probably, it depends, for the average sort of 70 kilo person, it's probably about three to four ounces at each meal. And that would be uh, dairy or meat or or eggs or something, or it it could not be uh, plant-based because that's just too much plant that you'd have to eat to get a sufficient amount. 
that the, it, it's lower in plant uh, proteins like lentils or chickpeas or whatever. They're yeah. lower in protein, so to eat a lot more of them. But remember, too, that they're starchy. And so basically, when you to eat enough, uh, give you an example, a four ounce chicken breast is going to give you 25 to 30 grams of protein. And so that's adequate for a meal to get the same amount of protein from lentils or chickpeas. You're going to have to eat three to four cups. Now, nobody eats that. So the consequence of, of, of encouraging plant based diets meaning more vegetarian or vegan, is that either they underdo the protein or they overdo the starch. Yeah. You can't have it both ways. Well, well, so this is an N of one, but what about the bodybuilder vegan who says, hey, look, look, look at how, look at my buff body and, and, uh, you know, I'm only, I'm purely plant-based. Yes, and there have been, you know, Olympic athletes who have yes. been vegan. But remember, they're expending a huge amount of energy. And so they're burning off that extra okay. calorie very quickly. That's a good point. It's the same as, you know, um, I, I on Twitter, there was uh, uh, people that I follow. One dietitian said to one quote, um, posted, am I the only dietitian in the world who doesn't recommend oatmeal for breakfast. Well, a bowl of porridge is the equivalent of about 30 teaspoons of sugar. That's what it becomes. And so when I saw, you know, in my my grandfather's farm, the men would go out in the morning and milk the cows and everything. Then they'd come in for breakfast. They'd eat a huge bowl of oatmeal, but then they'd eat bacon and eggs and, and, and grilled mushrooms and all sorts of things. But they'd go out and do a hard day's work mm-hmm. in the field and they would burn off those, that extra sugar. It's what happens to us when we have sedentary lifestyles. Right. Uh, even if we went for a run afterwards, I don't think it's doing the same. A hard day at the office is just not the same as a hard day in the field. <laughs> no, absolutely not. So, so I got a sense, just to rope us back into the concept of uh, food addiction, I got a sense that I think you do acknowledge that there is an addictive dynamic. You were explaining that. Do you believe that there is a condition called food addiction? Have you come across that in your work? Well, I've seen it, it talked about, and for sure, um, people are addicted to bread and to pasta. Yeah. And they just can't resist it. I think, you know, it goes back, here's my feeling, it goes back to the fact that our ancestors had very low energy diets. And so part of the drive to keep foraging for food would be to get enough calories to really hold body and soul together. And so we are born with a drive for high energy foods. A baby, a newborn baby has to grow quickly to try and become as independent as possible, as quickly as possible. So our first food has the two high energy foods are sugars or starches and fat. So our first food is the only food in nature, milk, that has both high sugar and high fat. And we demand it as babies. We We've been demand... chasing the dragon since then. <laughs> yeah. So we're still grown up babies that, you know, that we will have that drive and demand. And I think it explains the fact 
that, you know, because we still have this hardwired into our genes, yeah. why when they open up a Krispy Kreme donut in Toronto, the lineup is round the block. What's more sugar yeah. fat rich than a Krispy Kreme donut? We're just trying or, to get our mother's milk. <laughs> that's right. I, so I think that drive is still there and we feel comforted by it that there's another mechanism for that. It does raise brain serotonin, which is a, a comforting hormone, not really an antidepressant. That's more dopamine. And so, you know, we feel temporarily better, but because of the blood sugar dropping then, then the addictive component is the brain saying, I'm sorry, I can't work like this. Get me more. Yes. Would you, if somebody said to you, there, it's impossible that I, I'm going to stop bread or sugar, do you see in, would you ever advise in your consulting work that a person might be able to moderate their sugar? So here's basically what I say is usually when I'm working with people, I say, can you give this a year? Can you commit to a year? Because a year. you're going to be buying supplements. You're going to be trying to dramatically change the way you eat. And you're not going to see the benefits immediately. And I want you to go through a year. If I can get them through a year, mm -hmm. at the end, they will turn around and say, I no longer even crave those things. I, I love the way I eat now. And in other words, I think what happens is that the brain and the taste buds reconnect because they're eating real foods. They're not eating ersatz food. And they really start to understand. So the brain isn't dictating to them anymore to eat the wrong stuff. Yes. It's saying, no, I really like the way you're eating at the moment. It's working well for me. And so they keep up with it. But as far as starchy foods are concerned, usually I, I don't limit them completely. Although if people want to cut them out, I'm not worried. As I said, nobody ever died of a bread deficiency. So basically, I will suggest that they have a serving, if they like, if they need it and they want it, of starch with each meal. And the sugar has to go. I mean, sugar's the new smoking. There's no doubt about that. But the, the starch, so, but they need to know what a serving size is, and it's not very much. So a slice of bread, one slice of bread, is um, a minimally processed bread is a, is a serving so they can have one piece of good quality toast for breakfast um, for lunch they might have a serving size of rice for example as a side dish or is half a cup and we're not talking starbucks cups now you know <laughs> things like this. we're talking about measuring cups which are really quite small the biggest hurdle will be the pasta lovers because a yeah. serving size of pasta is still half a cup cooked and they, they're horrified, you know. But that's the way in the, the best Mediterranean diets, the ones that have been well researched. Sardinia is, is a, a prime example of where people age and age well and live a long life. And um, in Sardinia, you would get um, like half a cup of pasta at the beginning of a meal with a little bit you know, of olive oil, Parmesan cheese, a bit of garlic or something. And that would just take the edge off your appetite. And then you go on to the next course, which would be fish and vegetables or meat and vegetables. And then you'd eat a salad 
And I remember being in Sardinia 30 or 40 years ago. I mean, the best restaurants, you would have to special order a dessert. Oh, God, a special order. They finished the meal (laughs) with cheese and fruit. They didn't finish the meal with a dessert. But I just want to let me just ask you now, uh, and this is another end of one kind of situation, but um, there's some some people, especially in the plant based community that will say you can just eat rice like there are communities or, or cultures that it, rice is their main their mm-hmm. main carbohydrate. So how are they managing to get away without not without, you know, all, all these chronic conditions? Well, no, they do have or they don't have long lifespans. Uh, well, I mean, the, our hunter gatherers, actually, they like China, for example. Uh, they they lived a, a long life. If they if they escaped dying in childbirth um, from trauma right. uh, or infection, they but lived about eighty. But essentially, it's a it's a rice diet. No, uh, no hunter gatherers. I'm talking about when you look then at the transition to farmers where they lived yes. on grains. What happened was there were no periods of famine because you could store the grains, but Life expectancy plummeted, height plummeted. Um, the only thing that uh, increased was um, population because the mothers were not starving. They were yeah. able to get energy enough to see them through. But okay. the life expectancy went down to about 35 years of age. God. Okay. All right. Um, so so this, this eating um, uh, a high-carb, well, let's call it plant-rich diet that has enough protein in it sounds expensive, especially if I've also got to go to the, the, the health food store and get all sorts of supplements. But so how can we eat well and still be able to afford it? I don't think it is. I, I challenge that idea all the time that it's more okay. expensive. There's nothing more expensive than, you know, prepackaged foods that, you know, you're spending as much uh, on the cardboard box as you are what's inside it. So basically eating seasonally is very important. Eating locally, fruits and vegetables, you can pack your uh, shopping cart full of them and they will be cheap compared to uh, packaged pizza and a frozen dinner, this and so forth. There are some studies looking, you know, realistically at eating just the the good foods. The protein doesn't have to be expensive. It can be a tin of sardines, which is very inexpensive. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it doesn't have to be a, a, a steak, although there's nothing wrong with a nice little grass-fed steak. But you know, this is, this is, I think, a myth that you can't do this. You have to do a bit of cooking. And that is one of my beefs is so many people don't know how to cook. Mm-hmm. And you have to be able to prepare food yourself. That's where we're falling down, I think, in not teaching. I'd love to see community kitchens where people actually got together and cooked and, uh, you know, made good food, but cheaply. Okay, good. Uh, so just one more question, and then uh, I'm going to give it to Molly to finish up. Uh, your 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 point of view, this nutritional focus, have you had any um, obstacles from the sort of medical community, other community uh, about your message, which makes a lot of sense to me, but what's been what's been the response? There's a huge amount of pushback. Okay. Um, absolutely huge amount of pushback and, um, you know, a, a, a whole tendency to minimize, uh, you know, if, if a doctor says, but just eat a good diet, you want to say, can I come when you're having lunch and let me see what you're eating? Uh, 
you know, because basically if it's no point in saying just eat a good diet if you're not defining what that good diet is. And, you know, as I tried to say at the beginning, you get sick because of what you leave out of your diet. Every, much, every bit as much as the bad stuff that we may be eating that we need to get out of the diet. So I think there's quite a lot of pushback and largely it's through, through lack of information. I mean, I have no difficulty converting doctors if I, I need to get them in a classroom for a day minimum or a weekend. And at the end of it, they're absolutely shocked. And they're saying, we should have known this stuff. It's so relevant to our patients. But I never let them off the hook. As I say, you did know this stuff because you did biochemistry, maybe part of your undergraduate degree. I've been talking biochemistry the whole weekend. And they go, oh, yes, I remember um, the Krebs cycle and how we needed all these B vitamins and vitamin C and yeah. B10 to get energy out of food. But we never thought it was relevant to the patients. Right. Yeah, that, that's right. So you've made it applied, sort of applied biochemistry to food. So, yes. so uh, basically, if anybody's, uh, I, I, I found this talk very fascinating. So if, if somebody's interested in, you know, well, you've kind of given an idea of the diet, that the good diet, but the nutritional piece, uh, the nutritional um, at the supplements, as it were, your book would be a good place to start with uh, in terms of understanding what's essential and how to get it. And I hope so. Yes. Okay, good. So please read the books. Go ahead, Molly. Yeah, this has been fascinating. And I was actually just, I'm in the middle of watching a documentary where they were talking about evolutionarily speaking, yeah. I think it was like 2 million years ago when agriculture got going. Is that right? 10, 10. 10,000 years ago. 10,000 years ago. And ever since then, yes, they were talking about how our size as humans and our health and everything, like that was actually the beginning of the end. They said, we've been on the decline since then. And it was mind blowing. I was literally just watching that earlier today. And then to hear you say that again, it just, it's crazy. And I'm still trying to wrap my brain around that. Okay. Two things. What's next for you is the first thing I want to ask you. Well, I, I think one thing that happened with COVID is we've had some incredibly bad studies done. You know, more research has been published during COVID than at any other period. Oh, um, no. Interesting. By the time I was uh, uh, finishing the book, the, the, the first year of COVID, there were 100,000 new studies had been published. Um, some of them were in nutrition. Not a lot, but they, they, they got a lot of airtime and they were very badly done by people who didn't understand something like vitamin D. For example, mm-hmm. vitamin D is it's essential. There is no gene in the body that doesn't need vitamin D to be switched on. So if you find, as they did find, the nutritional immunologist immediately said, oh, look at the people in ICU and see what their vitamin D is. And it was rock bottom. You can't then turn around and say, okay, we'll give them vitamin D. And if they get better faster, we'll say vitamin D is important. But they didn't get better because they were also deficient in magnesium and they were also deficient in vitamin C. And you can die of any of these deficiencies. So basically, they then drew the conclusion, which is entirely incorrect. Therefore, vitamin D has nothing to do with immunity. It has everything to do with immunity. Uh-huh. You know? so, but all it means is if you find someone is short of vitamin D, you're 
honor bound to replace it. It's unethical not to replace it. But don't expect vitamin D to carry the load of all the nutrients. It can't do that. So I think I think we're going to have a lot of sick people after COVID, mm. not just because of long COVID, but also because of the unprecedented stress people have gone through. So there are a lot of people who've stressed and anxious. And there'll be a lot of mental health problems, I'm absolutely sure, cropping up. And so I really think my focus, I would like to focus more on how do we go from here? How do we revitalize? How do we get people back to vibrant health? Uh, so that would be my focus for the future. Right? I'm excited for that. I really, really am because I, I'm with you. I agree a hundred percent. Okay. So we have a signature question. I'm going to make it fit to you. So if you could tell a younger version of yourself, something about orthomolecular medicine, what would it be? What would it be? I think that bathing suit. <laughs> if I knew what I know now, when I was younger, not only would I have had a much easier passage through life, I may have avoided some illnesses, Hmm. Certainly, I, I talk in the healthy brain about the importance uh, in pregnancy, not just for the mother, but for the offspring's entire life, depending on the nutrients that they've got there. And, you know, I just think that I could have made a tremendous difference if I could have focused years ago on we need to get these messages out. We can't have people going through pregnancy, making a new little life form and a brain without the right nutrients to make that brain as good and as strong and as healthy and as balanced as it can be. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's really easy to say, you know, what would I tell my younger self? I'd say it's unfortunate, but <laughs> you didn't know what you know now. But that's it. Oh, that's great. Thank you, Eileen. Eileen, that was a fascinating talk. Well, I enjoyed it very much. It's great. And maybe we'll jump, bump into each other in Loblaws. Yeah, Loblaws. You said the produce section. (laughs) Right. And and I'm sure if we do bump into each other, we'll be eyeing up each other's shopping carts. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you so much for being here. Okay. Bye for now. Bye. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.